Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. It's the 16th of June, 2022. This podcast is another in our current affairs series, Interesting Times. It deals with a small fragment taken from Prime Minister's Questions, held in the United Kingdom House of Commons yesterday, Wednesday the 15th of June, 2022. What I'm hoping to achieve with this uh, analysis is uh, firstly to elucidate uh, one of the primary propaganda features of our universe of political discourse and also to elucidate the nature of the so-called opposition that we have in our politics. A little bit of context before going on to the actual fragment itself. For our non-UK listeners, I should just mention that Prime Minister's Questions is a a bit of an institution in the UK. And every week, the Prime Minister comes to the House of Commons and answers questions from MPs. A key feature of the proceedings is that the leader of the opposition the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, in this case one Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, gets to ask six questions of the Prime Minister as a a privilege of being the leader of the opposition. Other MPs uh, ask one question, I believe. If anybody hasn't seen this spectacle, and maybe some of our non-UK listeners haven't seen it, it's worth a watch. Uh, UK Parliament has its own channel, And all items of uh, government deliberation, um, which are conducted publicly, are also transmitted through this TV channel. And they're also, the highlights always end up all over YouTube as well. And it's instructive to watch because it's a clear indication of the sheer infantilism into which our political processes have descended it is basically just a kind of a, a slanging match or, or, or a knockabout and with much booing and jeering and hand waving and jumping up and down and shouting and generally uh, a, an MP asks a question and it's either a planted question from uh, the Prime Minister's own side from Boris Johnson's friends and he has a nice pat answer, which makes him look good. Or it's a hostile question from somebody like the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party or the or the Labour Party, or even a hostile backbencher from his own party. In, and in these instances, the Prime Minister uh, tries to come back with a, a nice piece of rhetoric or a witty quip. And, and if there's an attempt to gotcha him in the question, he, he of course, tries uh, very diligently to sidestep any embarrassment whatsoever. Now, in the case of Johnson, his, his general tactic is not to answer the question, but to sort of go off on a rant, uh, which is a kind of party political broadcast, uh, generally lying through his teeth and gushing out uh, figures that do not bear examination about how great the economy is doing. Truth is, the economy is 
tanking and will be in recession shortly. And it's generally a pretty demoralising spectacle, particularly for anybody who thinks that it's entirely feasible that the world doesn't have to be such a pile of shit. Now, in the case that I'm about to analyse... I'm not really uh, taking much notice of, of Johnson's uh, usual uh, nonsense and tissue of lawyers. Uh, instead, I'm going to focus on a very few words uttered by the leader of the opposition. So, what transpired at PMQs that grabbed my attention uh, was this. A couple of questions in, Starmer decided that he would take the opportunity to embarrass the Prime Minister. That was fairly easy to do, given that uh, Johnson uh, uh, has very recently been the subject of a vote of no confidence uh, by his own party in Parliament. In other words, the the Tory MPs had a a vote of no confidence in Johnson. This was precipitated by Johnson's kind of pretty poor performance and his, his habitual lying and law-breaking and uh, party-gate, curtain-gate. And uh, I don't know, there's a, perhaps a suspicion amongst Tory MPs that the, the chickens are going to come home to roost on the death toll of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is pretty considerable in the UK. Starmer proceeds then to address the backbenchers, the Tory backbenchers. He's kind of waving and shouting over Johnson's head to the backbenchers. And what he does is he reads out rude things that Tory backbenchers uh, have said about Johnson. Now, let's bear in mind that in the vote of no confidence, that Johnson uh, did, he did win, he wasn't found lacking, in which case he would have resigned and there would have been a Tory leadership election. But Johnson only got 211 votes in his favour and 148 votes against. In other words, so 41% of Tory MPs actually don't believe that Johnson is up to the job of being the leader of their party and therefore Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. 41%. So he's actually got 148 people sitting on his back benches who are fairly disgruntled about his performance. Now, typically, uh, Tory MPs don't survive this kind of thing. They limp on for a while. Theresa May uh, was the subject of a similar vote of no confidence. She did rather better than Johnson, but... A few months later, I forget how long, nine months later, she was out. Chances are he's not going to survive this. No, people In the past, people haven't survived this kind of an outcome. It's pretty damaging to him. There's a sense in which his, his, his PM ship is damaged and he's trying to rescue it. He's trying to deflect with new initiatives and radical-looking uh, policies and dead cats, of course. Endless dead cats, things which distract. 
So Storm is trying to play play the gallery. He's trying to look like the uh, the knockabout uh, politician, which he isn't. It's a pretty lame performance. But he's he's having a go, and he's he's, he's hailing the Tory backbenchers. He's reading some uh, insulting things said about Johnson that one of them ostensibly has said, and saying, pointing you know to the to the to the Tory backbenchers, saying, "Is this you? Is this you? Who's going to own up? Come on, hands up! Somebody own up!" To this, just really having a go at embarrassing Johnson. And then, after a couple of examples, he comes to his next example. And what I'm going to do here is just paste that in, because I recorded it so you can hear the item of interest from the horse's mouth. list here of what his MPs really think of him. Drag, dragging everyone down. Who who said that? Come on. Who would have said that? Authority, authority is destroyed. Come on, hands up. Which which of you was it? Which of you? Come on. Can't, can't win back trust. Anybody owning up? They're very quiet now. Hands, hands. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, my... My personal favourite, my personal favourite is this. This is a document, circ- document circulated by his backbench, in which they call him the Conservative Corbyn. <laughs> Prime Minister, I don't think that was intended as a compliment. <laughs> we- What's going on here? The first thing to mention is that this incident has attracted a fair bit of attention in in social media. I see quite a few leftists uh, commenting on this and uh, there's a pretty universal apprehension that there's something very dodgy and shifty and underhand, uh, somehow lacking in integrity, has gone on here, even though they're, they're a kind of different... Slightly different angles, slightly different takes. For myself, this represented two things. Firstly, the culmination of years of propaganda. Massive propaganda effort, I have to say. Level against Corbyn, the Corbyn project, the kind of ideas that Corbyn espoused, and against the uh, hundreds of thousands of followers who were inspired by those ideas. Secondly, it amounts to a signal on Starmer's part that he is in fact a fully paid up member of the the club, the establishment, um, as indicated, as signalled by his correct use of the signifier, Corbyn. Uh, Notice uh, correct here means correct from the point of view of the establishment. He is also, of course, dog-whistling to the socially conservative voters who, in his imagination, he might be able to turn into Labour voters. All of this works by the conversion of the term Corbyn into a metonym. 
Now this probably is going to take a little bit of explaining. What is a metonym? It's the first thing we need to put in place. The great font of wisdom, which is Google, tells me that a metonym, and I quote, is a noun. Which means a word, name or expression used as a substitute for something else with which it is closely associated. For example, Washington is a metonym for the US government. End quote. Rather obviously, a metonym is not just a simple sign. If Washington can stand in for the entire American government in all its complexity, and with all its history, and with all the political and organisational philosophies that, that it embodies, then there is a kind of condensation of meanings taking place. A whole encyclopaedia of information is being incorporated into a very, very simple signifier. Washington, it's just a city, an inanimate collection of buildings in a state, in a country. But yet, discursively, its name can stand in for all of this encyclopedic complexity. Now, according to the definition of a metonym that we've just uh, cited, there is a close association between the name and the complex entity, which is the US government. And it is quite simply that Washington is the geographical location where the main offices of government are situated. What about the signifier Corbyn, then? The term Corbyn does two jobs. One is to name the MP for Islington, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, former leader of the Labour Party, etc. It's just the name of a person. But it's also now become one of these metonymic signifiers that with a similar feature to the term Washington in that it condenses a whole load of meaning into it. And you can see clearly from Starmer's example and the way he uses it, and if you watch the video you'd see that, uh, uh, that he was laughing and everybody was laughing and the front branch were all grinning and in the know. Uh, aren't we cool? We're all in the same party. Uh, we're all in the same gang. And it's obvious that it signifies everything bad. Everything bad. In the entire world. How did this happen, given that Jeremy Corbyn is a, generally a, a decent human being, an admirable person in his, his, his character, a man of integrity, a decades-long campaigner against racism and all kinds of injustice. How does such a man become the devil? A man whose name might well start to serve the function hitherto served by the name of one Adolf Hitler as a general purpose signifier of evil. 
Well, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, you may have noticed that since uh, Corbyn's election as leader of the Labour Party in, I think, 2015, that he's been subjected to the most remorseless, relentless campaign of negative reporting, negative propaganda, that certainly I can't recall anything uh, of the same intensity with which the same passion has been expended by pundits, the mainstream media, the BBC, and tragically, members of Corbyn's own party. His leadership was challenged in 2016, a challenge which Corbyn saw off. This is a leader who expanded the party to become the biggest grassroots party in Europe, uh, swelled the funds so that when he left office there was 15 million in the coffers for campaigns and so forth. Over and against the, 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 the corruption, the relentless lying of, of a Johnson on the other side, how does this happen? Well, we all know there was a relentless campaign, you know, the press were there day after day after day. The worst was BBC Radio 4 Today programme. They were there day in and day out. The great and the good all joined in with it. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the Chief Rabbi, all kinds of uh, celebrities who for some reason people think are are endowed with some kind of wisdom because they can turn a phrase or they can act a little bit. It's not the case. I mean, this was an atrocious phenomenon. And the thing is, hardly any of it was in any way true. It was a pack of lawyers. It was a scam. Uh, just to prevent any whiff of socialism entering into British political life, into any altruism entering into political British political life, any grassroots politics from entering into British political life. Even the Secretary of State for the United States joined in, Mike Pompeo, who was Trump's Secretary of State, uh, and basically threatened regime change. Said if this bloke gets in, we're going to have to stop him. In fact, we might have to stop him before if it looks like he's going to get in. You know. Dirty tricks right from the start. It was a scam, and this is objectively demonstrable. I'll just read a couple of sentences from the Wikipedia entry on Jeremy Corbyn. And, okay, you might have reservations about Wikipedia, but the quotations that I have are from uh, pretty good academic sources. There was an academic report from the London School of Economics. It was a study and analysis conducted in July 2016 of months of eight national newspaper articles about Corbyn in the first months of his leadership of Labour. And, quote, This showed that 75% of them either distorted or failed to represent his actual views on subjects. The academic report argues that the British media has systematically attacked and delegitimised Corbyn as a political leader ever since he rose to national prominence in the summer of 2015. The authors argued that Corbyn was represented with scorn and ridicule in both the broadsheet and tabloid press through a process of vilification 
that went, quotes, well beyond the normal limits of fair debate and disagreement in a democracy, end quotes. Birkbeck College of the University of London uh, analysed TV and online news during 10 days after the wave of resignations from Corbyn's shadow cabinet following the Brexit vote in late June 2016, found, quote, a marked and persistent imbalance in favour of sources critical to Jeremy Corbyn. Loughborough University in 2017, according to a study and an analysis uh, from their uh, Centre of Research in Communication and Culture, International News Reporting of the Election, quotes, a considerable majority of the reports on Labour are critical of Labour, its leader and its manifesto, whereas newspapers are being far more balanced in their coverage of the Conservatives, with positive and negative reporting balancing each other out. The attacks coming from the most popular national newspapers with The Sun and The Daily Express particularly focusing their negative coverage on Labour. The Daily Mail and The Times have also been hostile to Labour but have balanced that out with positive reporting of the Conservatives. And so on. Anyway, uh, uh, this little paragraph here also quotes Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky said that Corbyn would be doing better in opinion polls if it was not for the bitter hostility of the mainstream media, he said. And I'm quoting Chomsky now. If he had a fair treatment from the media, that would make a big difference, end quotes. Of course, one of the uh, biggest and nastiest elements of this were all the false allegations of widespread anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. This went on to the extent that the public thought that, I don't know, half of Labour Party members were rabid anti-Semites, the truth being that this, it was estimated at kind of, I don't know, a fraction of a percent. Certainly all the Labour Party people I know are just... Uh, very determined anti-racists and that was an absolute diabolical scam and there is no doubt about it. The EHRC report of which much is made actually you know if you read it I mean as a report it's a pile of crap as I've gone into if you go back over these podcasts you'll find I did do a, a, a fairly close look at the report itself and I think the report itself was lacking on, on certain philosophical grounds. It just kind of presumes things at the outset that you can't presume. Lawyers have criticised it for its uh, cavalier attitude to rewriting the law, which is not a part of its brief. And many lawyers said that uh, some of the charges in the report would not stand a judicial review or a, a legal challenge. And uh, people seem to forget that the EHRC report dealt with about three, maybe four cases. And these were cases of some kind of procedural uh, technicality, really. I mean, it's pretty fair to say that Labour's uh, internal mechanisms for dealing with complaints and so on were pretty crap. The Labour Party's bureaucracy is utterly chaotic, but this does not make all of the Labour Party members... Those grassroots members who all flocks around Corbyn, anti-Semites, they are the opposite of that. So it was a, oh, a disgusting weaponisation of, of one of the great uh, tragedies of the last few hundred years. 
Now, the name Corbyn, as used by Starmer in PMQs yesterday, was a kind of culmination of these years of vilification, of these years of lies, fabrication, propaganda, which is what all of this was. It was a concerted propaganda assault, somewhat coordinated, but also the... uh, the sympathisers with the establishment know when to chime in anyway, simply by being who they are. They don't need to have a, a conspiracy and all be getting into the WhatsApp group to say, OK, intensify on Corbyn today. They don't need to do that. It's internalised with these people. And this condensation into the name Corbyn of everything that's evil is a result of this propaganda exercise. It's almost like a culmination of it. It's not to say that it's now not going to morph into other things, but it's it's condensed all this meaning into this one name, this one name of this one man. And all of these meanings, this metonym, bears no resemblance to the man whose name is Corbyn. There is a complete disconnect between the world, between reality, between observable, empirical reality. And the discourse around Corbyn, around Corbyn's labour, around socialism, which now has very, very wide acceptance as a result of all of this propaganda, to the extent Starmer only has to utter the word Corbyn for us to understand all of that meaning, all of that evil. But in a sense, Corbyn's not a true metonym here because that which it condenses into itself is not true. Simply, almost 100% untrue, fabricated for, for nefarious purposes of domination and of upholding the toxic, malignant status quo, which is the British body politic. All of the various evils attributed to Corbyn are present in that moment when Starmer utters the word Corbyn and says of Johnson as an insult, as a taunt, that Johnson is the Tory Corbyn. And, of course, attributing this insult to a disgruntled Tory backbencher. Yeah, well, massively uh, insulting to Johnson, but also massively insulting to the the left in the UK. So instead of a long and tedious history needing to be explained over and over again, by anybody wanting to mobilise the Corbyn story in in the interests of the status quo. Instead of that, we have a single name which condenses all of these myriad libels, slanders and scurrilous accusations into a single name. Astonishing, astonishing. And of course that name, in its new function, in its new place in the political discourse, has nothing whatsoever to do with the real man 
Corbyn. We have now erected a bogey, a big other, an embodiment of evil, a name which can serve a function that hitherto has been served by names like Hitler, Stalin, and so on. Except in their cases, we might be justified in attributing some evil to their actions. In Corbyn's case, you can't. But this tool, this cudgel, which is the name Corbyn, has been fashioned by an absolutely relentless, remorseless, intense, detailed campaign of vilification conducted over a period of some years and which is now going on, even though Corbyn is now an independent MP in the House of Commons, having had the whip withdrawn uh, by the uh, Starmer front bench. So he's in some senses a peripheral figure, yet still he haunts them. He haunts them because thousands and thousands of young people got behind him, because he was able to expand the party, because he was able to mass thousands of people at rallies. Because in 2017 he was only a couple of thousands of votes from bringing in the most radical uh, socialist programme into British politics that you've seen since 1945. Even though in global terms it was still sort of quite mild. My own enthusiasm for it was was, was kind of limited in, in as much as I saw it as, as a crack, as an opening, which with a bit of luck and a following wind could become much more, could become some some proper socialism, some proper radical reform of the political system, which in its current incarnation, globally, is taking us off the precipice as a species into extinction. And that's why I think it's very important to understand this propaganda process. You see how out of all the four or five years of history, of the the turbulent history of of Labour, that something can be extracted which can be used as a simple cudgel, a simple but powerful cudgel. The next question, of course, then is, well, why is Starmer, as leader of the Labour Party, using it? And I'll put it to you that what Starmer was doing when he stood up in the Commons and said quoting a Tory backbencher, Johnson Johnson is the Tory Corbyn, that he was in fact signalling that he is somebody who understands how to use this cudgel. Remember, it's a cudgel that can only be employed effectively by the establishment. It's a cudgel fashioned by the establishment to protect the establishment from perhaps the most concerted threat, at least in its own mind, that it's been faced with for a very long time, short of war and disaster and pandemic and so on. It was a cudgel that arose out of this vilification, this endless vilification, the sole purpose of which is to prevent 
the establishment from being upended in the United Kingdom. And Starmer signalled in its use that he himself is a member of that establishment. Well, of course, he is Sir Keir. He was the Director of Public Prosecutions. He did rise to the top of the most conservative profession, the legal profession. He is a member of the Trilateral Commission, which is a neoliberal think tank. So is it any surprise that he stands up there and uses the term Corbyn in exactly the same way that Johnson would use it? Now, OK, you might say this is just politic, this is just a pragmatism, but this is a man who did serve in Corbyn's front bench in his shadow cabinet. Who did? When he stood for the election as leader of the Labour Party after the 2019 electoral defeat. Promise to uphold the pledges of the 2019 manifesto which are an excellent start into rescuing the absolute dire situation that the UK is in as a nation and that humanity is in as a species. And that's pretty shabby and hypocritical. But no surprise either. To recap, two things this incident has allowed us to see. It allowed us to see the workings of propaganda, how you repeat, you repeat, you repeat. It's a remorseless wearing down, like the tide wearing down a rock, until eventually there is sand, only sand. Repeat, 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 which of course was something well understood by Dr Goebbels, master of uh, Nazi propaganda. And then how... Out of that process of repetition over a long time and on a number of fronts you can fashion a metonym, a signifier that will enable you to do all that toxic work, all of that vilification, all of that trashing of a personality, a movement of hope, of necessary ideas and policies and philosophies. In a single utterance of two syllables, Corbyn. You've got to hand it to them, they've done a number on the, the people. I've gone on long enough now, but I've one last point to uh, make. And that is how poor... The pushback was against all of this, this vilification. It was as though the, the, the left, this wonderful, enthusiastic left, the, uh, composed largely of young people, but not entirely, that came out of the shadows, was suddenly like a, a deer in the headlights, didn't know what to do, how to push back against this. And really, it was a kind of shock and trauma and astonishment that such barefaced lying could go on and that the great and the good, people who are supposed to be respectable and dependable, could just go on to public media and address millions of people with downright lawyers that they must have known were lawyers. I mean, that just shocked everybody, uh, I think, that 
the uh, possibility of pushback was was attenuated just by all that. And why should we know how to deal with this? Why should we? Of course, we need to find out how to deal with it. We need to figure it out. Certainly, I would say, a part of that has got to be understanding how this shit works. If you don't understand it, you can't push back against it. If this indeed is our political life now, this tissue of lies, propaganda, shabby, dirty dealings, then, as far as I can see, revolution is the only way to save the day. Okay, I'm going to leave you with that, and uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you're having a good apocalypse, and do take care of yourselves. And over and out for now.